Hey besties, it's Elizabeth here. Let's talk for a minute, shall we? I don't know about you, but something about a clean house just makes me feel super calm. Maybe it's the fresh smells. Maybe it's knowing that it's not going to be chaos in a wreck for 15 minutes. But if you're like me, you are constantly looking for cleaning and household products that are ethical, safe, and not full of all of those super harsh chemicals. And that's where Grove Collaborative comes in. They're a new partner of ours, and they have ethical and cruelty-free brands such as Mrs. Myers and Method. Not only do they have cleaning products, but they also sell beauty products, health products such as vitamins, and even stuff for the kids like sunscreen, shampoo. And they're also in the process of reducing their plastic use and switching to glass. So not only are they trying to give you products that are safe for your family, but they're trying to save the planet. You can help support the show as well as get items you already need by going to grove.pxf.io slash horrendous. And by using this link, not only do you help support our show, but you're also going to get stuff that you already need. And then you'll get yourself a free Mrs. Myers gift set with a $30 purchase. And the best part of all is that you're not stuck with some monthly commitment. So go to grove.pxf.io slash horrendous to get your free Mrs. Myers gift set with your $30 purchase today. Thanks, besties. Hi, welcome to Horrendous, a best friend's podcast. And today I am with my best friend till the end, Elizabeth. And oh, by the way, I'm Callie. Sorry, I forgot. I should mention I'm hungover. With I'm me sorry. As always. I mean, that that's that's a fair thing. I mean, I'm not. I'm just tired. My son decided he wanted to wake up at two o'clock in the morning because he needed me to go to the bathroom with him and then wanted to stay up for a little bit. So that was fun. Uh, and then I've just been super depressed this weekend after the passing of Taylor Hawkins. I'm sorry. Just, it's okay. The the Foo Fighters are literally probably my favorite band, if not like in the top three. I know you have to really love them. So hearing that he passed away was very sad. And for those of you who don't know, Taylor Hawkins is the drummer for the Foo Fighters. And he actually was a drummer on uh, Alanis Morissette's Jagged Little Pill Tour. That is a good album. Great album. I we were way too young to be listening oh, to yeah. it, and we had no idea what she was singing about, but we really felt it. We did. I had the cassette tape, and my mom was like, "I don't, I don't know if I want you to listen to this." I'm like, "I'm, I'm gonna listen to it." <laughs> <laughs> my grandpa did that like music choice club thing. Okay, so when he would get these CDs, he would transfer them to cassette tapes and mail them to us so we had it on cassette tape as well but it was pirated so yeah (laughs) i don't know what else to say to that my grandpa was really good at pirating stuff (laughs) is there is there a uh statute of limitations on pirating because i don't want to get him in trouble (laughs) i i'll google it before i decide if i'm gonna keep that in or not well i didn't say his name you could leave it okay i'll yeah. I don't think the, um, what is it? The, it starts with an F. FCC? Yes, the FCC. I don't think they're listening to this show. So I think we're okay. 
for now. Yeah, but that's yeah, that's really that's been all that's been going on. Just that, and then preparing for uh, my trip to the grandparents, and that's yeah. That I, I don't really have much else going on in my life right now. Speaking of which, just so we have a heads up, we will not be releasing an episode the week of since we moved our day to Wednesday, so the twentieth. We will not have an episode that day. And it's also Callie's birthday. It's also my birthday. But I am also going on vacation the week before and like it just it would be a lot. Yeah. So we're taking we're taking a break. A scheduled one. Don't worry. <laughs> well yeah, a scheduled break and we'll be back. Don't worry. I know everybody's so worried. Don't worry. Yeah. We're just having fun. But yeah, that's all I have going on. I don't I mean I don't know if there's anything else really to you know engage and talk about. Callie found a new cult, but that's a whole yeah. tangent we're going to just have to save. <laughs> and then also, I decided that I'm going to move to Castle Rock, Colorado. Yes. I was at Mega Fan McKenzie's house last night, holding the baby, enjoying his sweet baby smell. <laughs> And I get a text from Callie. <laughs> There's a Castle Rock, Colorado. How did I not know this? And me, being a terrible friend, forgot to mention it, that I discovered this when I was in Estes Park this year, just looking through things and found there was a Castle Rock. So yeah, now Callie is looking up homes on Zillow. And I'm sure Elizabeth knows this about me, but you guys might not. I have to... Like, when I finally buy a house, it has to be a blue house. has to be a blue house. It can't be in California because, as previously stated on this podcast, Callie will never be able to buy a home in California. No, No, I won't. (laughs) So, it has has to be blue. Keep the ghosts out. Yeah. It's also not even my favorite color. It's mine. It's Elizabeth's. Um, (laughs) But you have to paint it haint blue so the ghosts stay out. Yes. But I found a house on Silo that was four bedrooms, four baths, and it's blue. And it, is blue. it was reasonably priced. See, I saw that price and wanted to throw up. So considering I've been looking at California prices, that was reasonable. Yeah, it's priced. reasonable for California. Yes. So... Yeah, that's that's all the news I have. Don't know when I'm moving, but but sometime in the future. Yes, to Castle Rock, Colorado. An undetermined date. That's all I have this week. Oh, yeah, I don't have anything else. Oh, oh, the baby's teething. Oh no, I'm so sorry. So if there's screams in the background, I'm very very sorry. We're trying our best. <laughs> we don't condone torture unless it's for a really good reason. But we really do not condone the torture of children. So please, disclaimer, baby is teething. Yes. So, yeah, that's all I have. And Elizabeth's going to tell me about a missing person? Yes. Okay. Okay. So before I get started, let me just say uh, my sources are the charlieproject.org, the Center for Missing and Exploited Children.com, KMOV.com, thank you, Channel 4. The southeastmissourian.com, kfbs12.com, and the doughnetwork.com. 
Okay, so after the Christina Hickey episode, I really wanted to try to stay away from true crime for a little bit, but I did make a point in that episode that all victims deserve justice, we need to talk about different cold cases instead of the famous ones, blah, 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 you know, I went on my tangent. Yes. And so I started to rethink that decision a little bit, and it brought me back to a case that Callie and I discussed right when we started conceptualizing the podcast. And the truth is, like, there are so many cold cases, murders, and disappearances that need to be discussed, and they need to be put out there, and this is one of them. However, it seems, like I said, the true crime community only sticks to the sensational and the infamous. And with that said, I'm going to start an ongoing series of cold cases that may not be as well known or even known at all, but again, All victims deserve justice, so these stories deserve as much attention as the well-known ones that are repeatedly covered ad nauseum. And I don't say that as a, we shouldn't be talking about these cases. I say it as these same cases are talked about all the time. Right. Okay. So, and again, this is just going to be an ongoing series. It's not going to be sequential. I just will, you know, every couple episodes just add to... This series I'm doing. You know what I'm trying to say. Yes. I can't talk right now. Oh, great. Okay. <laughs> right? <laughs> and this is what we're supposed to be doing is talking. So that's not good. Uh, okay. So the first story I'm going to do in this ongoing series is not known, to, well known to the world at large. But if you lived in or you still live in Missouri, specifically Southeast Missouri like Callie and I did, then you probably have heard about this case. It was almost like the tale of the boogeyman. Parents would tell kids this story as a cautionary tale to be careful when we were out and about on our bikes, playing, walking home, at the park, at the pool, etc. It was also a case that made residents of small towns realize that these things didn't just happen in the big bad city. Because that's one thing if you live in a small town is, oh, that stuff only happens in the city. It can't happen here. Right. It was scary and shocking that something like this could happen in such a small, close-knit community because it really meant that it could happen to anyone and it could happen anywhere. The story I'm talking about today is the kidnapping of 13-year-old Gina Dawn Brooks. Gina Dawn Brooks was born November 28, 1975. She shares a birthday with my sister Jessica. Hmm. She grew up in the small town of Fredericktown, Missouri, which was about, what would you say, 45 minutes from where we grew up? 30 Yeah, 30 to 45. Because Farmington's only like 15 minutes. True. And it's only like 15 minutes past that, if even. Yeah, depending on where you're going in Fredericktown. So yeah, about 30 to 45 minutes. And it was very similar to the small town Callie and I grew up in, and probably exactly like every other small town in America. Fredericktown is hidden in the foothills of the St. Francis Mountains and has a population of around 4,000 people today. Everybody knows each other, and you guessed it, our favorite thing about small towns, no one ever locked their doors. Nope, never. Not even once. (laughs) Right? And they probably still don't. And when summer comes, that means Little League softball and baseball, trips to the river or to a lake, riding your bikes around town with your friends, even staying out until dark or even past dark. And when Gina was a kid, it was the 1980s, and it was a very different time from raising children today. There were no cell phones, which parents could track you through the Find My Friend app or, you know, whatever family app you're using. 
Parents let their kids ride their bikes past the end of their block. Hell, they even let their kids ride across town. And I know when you and I were growing up, that was kind of a thing as well, too. Yeah. And Gina was very much one of those kids. The night of August 5th, 1989 was just another one of those normal summer nights. The local Little League field had games going. Gina's brother was playing on his baseball team that night, in fact. School was on the horizon, and everyone was probably trying to make the most of what was left of their summer vacation. Gina had been watching her brother's baseball game and walked home after it was over. She arrived home at 10 p.m. and said goodnight to her mom, Cindy, who was getting ready to go to bed, and she told her brother she was going to ride her bike to her friend's house. Gina left her house around 10.30, dressed in white shorts, a blue striped top, and sneakers, and it would be the last time she was seen by her family. Based on eyewitness accounts and what police could gather, she rode past the baseball field again and was stopped while on her bike in front of the First Baptist Church by unknown people in a station wagon. She kept riding her bike down Franklin Street until she turned the corner onto High Street, where she saw her boyfriend, T.J. Kennedy, and his friend, Chad Morgan. She stopped to talk to him for a little bit before getting back on her bike and riding off. Kennedy and Morgan said that after Gina rode off her bike, they saw the same busted-up station wagon headed down the same street. Soon after, they heard a scream and saw the station wagon speeding off. Around 11 o'clock, Lieutenant Keith Despain received a call reporting a bike found on High Street shortly after hearing someone scream. When Despain arrived, he found the bike laying where he was told he would find it, but found nothing else out of the ordinary. There was no signs of a struggle or anything weird, and so he just assumed it was left behind a kid, so he set it up in the yard where he had found it. This was only five blocks from Gina's home. Soon after, another call came in from a neighbor reporting having heard a scream and squealing tires, but really had no other information to provide other than that. About 2 a.m., Cindy, Gina's mother, woke up and found that Gina had not made it home from her friend's house and immediately called the police. Cindy informed police that she'd left on her bike to a friend's house and had not returned. Keith Despain immediately connected the report of the bike and the scream to Gina not having returned home. Police immediately began to retrace her steps, starting at the ball field and down Franklin and High Street past the First Baptist Church. Police interviewed witnesses who all described seeing a battered station wagon driving around that night. TJ Kennedy and Chad Morgan were interviewed and stated they saw the station wagon as well, and Gina had told them about being stopped by it. They additionally told police shortly after she left on her bike to go to her friend's house, they saw the station wagon again and heard Gina screaming TJ's name from the back of it. They said the station wagon sped off toward U.S. Highway 67. And so for those of you who are not familiar, Highway 67 is basically the main highway that connects, you know, starting from Festus, Missouri, and connects all the way down, basically like what, to Poplar Bluff, you would say? Did you know Highway 67 also turns into Lindbergh Boulevard? It does. That's right. Charles Lindbergh <laughs> rearing his ugly ass head. Uh, I followed it on the map. It goes all the way to Texas. Okay, so there. U.S. Highway 67 goes all the way to Texas. And it is basically the main highway where Callie and I grew up. Yes. If you wanted to get somewhere, you were taking U.S. Highway 67. Police began combing the streets of Fredericktown looking for Gina or anyone who could possibly help connect the station wagon to someone they knew. The search continued into the early morning hours with no trace of Gina being able to be found. 
Volunteers, law enforcement, and the FBI followed leads, searched state parks, the countryside, and even abandoned buildings hoping to find her. Posters with Gina's face began to go up everywhere, hoping it was to get attention from someone who knew even the smallest detail that could help bring her home. The community held vigils, marches, and continued the search for Gina with no luck. Over the years, the case grew cold, and even though tips could come would come in and were followed up on, but with no avail. Even psychics would call in stating that they have visions of Gina and where her body was. And one infamous encounter, and when I do the blog, I'll post the link to this, had a psychic called investigators proclaiming that she had a vision of Gina being buried somewhere near water, possibly a quarry. So investigators drained the quarry and that was nearby Fredericktown and turned up nothing. In 1995, however, the case would take a very strange turn. An hour and a half away in St. Louis, homicide commander David Heath received a letter from the mother of a young woman named Laura Denwitty. Laura had been murdered in 1975 in St. Louis. Laura had moved here after volunteering for Volunteers in Service in America, a.k.a. VISTA, and was assigned to St. Louis. Now, we need to do a whole... We'll do a story about Laura separately because she deserves to have her uh, story told as well. But just for time, we're not going to really get into too much of it. Laura was found murdered in her apartment in the Hyde Park neighborhood of St. Louis, In her letter to Chris Pappas, Laura's mother pleaded for St. Louis City Police Department to not forget Laura's case because it had gone cold. Pappas had the case file pulled and started from scratch. In his search for the original informants of the case, Pappas was led to Farmington Correctional Center, where Nathan Danny Williams was serving a 30-year sentence for trigger warning, the 1989 sexual assault of a 10-year-old girl, and the 1979 assault of a 13-year-old girl. Williams initially had pointed investigators in the Dinwiddie case to one of his friends, and after some time, Chris Pappas actually had enough evidence to tie Williams to Laura Dinwiddie's murder. But what does this have to do with the disappearance of Gina Don Brooks? Well, it seems that Nathan Williams also had ties to Fredericktown, Missouri. Pappas reached out to the now police chief, Keith Despain, and explained that he had found out about Nathan Williams' ties to Fredericktown. Despain reached out to FBI agent Bill Francis, and the three of them began to dig deeper into Williams and his ties to Fredericktown. It turns out, in 1989, Williams' brother had a close friend who just so happened to live very near Gina Don Brooks' home, a home which Williams frequented several times with his brother. referring to the friend, not Gina. That sentence actually seemed very confusing now that I'm reading it. So yes, so Williams frequented this house of his, with his brother many times and the home of his friend happened to actually be very near Gina's home, just for clarity. Sorry. That's okay. And that 1989 sexual assault conviction that sent him to jail, well, it just so happens he committed that crime one month after Gina Don Brooks went missing. Williams eventually agreed to participate in a lie detector test, which he failed, but we can also say that lie detector tests are not reliable and they're also not admissible in court. So do with that information what you will. And because of that, it's not enough to connect him to Gina, unfortunately. During the investigation, the FBI did 
something that was actually out of the ordinary. They made a tape. Remember those VHS tapes? Yep. <laughs> Explaining the details of the case asking for help. The tape was then distributed to the Missouri Department of Corrections, requesting any information for anyone who may be connected to or have information that could tie Williams to the Gina Don Brooks case. So why would police do this? Criminals, why would they want to rat each other out? Well, most people probably know this, but inmates and criminals in the correctional system have a very strict code of conduct when it comes to crimes against children. So if you committed a crime against the child, they will throw your ass under the bus. Yeah. If they haven't already murdered you. Right. Soon after the tape was distributed, the FBI was contacted with two names, Bryant Squires and Timothy Ballou. Bryant Squires was Nathan Williams' best friend. It would be Squires that tied Williams to Gina Don Brooks. In 1996, Squires was dying of cancer in prison. And before his death, due to complications from his cancer diagnosis and also having AIDS, Squires allegedly made a deathbed confession to two of his nurses, which implicated himself and Nathan Williams in the abduction and murder of Gina Don Brooks. Bryant Squires told his nurses that he was actually the one that was driving the station wagon that night and Williams was the passenger. Squires stated that they grabbed Gina off the street and drove out of town. It was in the station wagon that Squires stated Williams had murdered Gina. He also implicated himself and Williams in other cases, but upon further investigation into those cases, it was found that a lot of those claims actually were not true. Police then began to look at Timothy Ballou, who they believed was the third person in the station wagon on August 5th, 1989. Ballou would also say he saw Williams kill Gina that night. Police would end up charging him with second-degree murder for this claim, and because Squires had died, they could never charge him. He would further claim they buried Gina's body on his father's property. However, after a search of the property, investigators were not able to find Gina's remains. Ballou would be charged with lying to the FBI after his stories about that night and what happened to Gina kept falling apart and they would have to drop the second-degree murder charge. He pleaded guilty to the charge of lying to the FBI and was sentenced to 30 months in jail. After his release from jail for a 1990 sexual assault of a 7-year-old girl, which he served five years for, he moved back to the Fredericktown area where he still lives today. So that's totally cool. Yeah. Actually really aggravated the shit out of me. Right. So what about Williams? In 1998, nine years after Gina's disappearance, Williams was officially charged with, the, charged with the abduction and murder of Gina Don Brooks. Chris Pappas would be the one to officially serve the warrant to Williams in his cell. He said Williams actually didn't even act surprised. He just, how, he just asked, how did you get all of this information? However, as I stated at the beginning, this case is still considered a cold case. So you may be asking, well, why? If they charge somebody with the crime, why is it a cold case? Well, because Danny William, Nathan Danny Williams is a piece of shit. He pled not guilty to the charge. And because of fear of double jeopardy, in 2003, law enforcement had to drop the charges against Williams, putting the case back to square one. However, investigators have not lost hope, even though the case grows colder People involved or who may have information either have moved away or passed away or, you know, people forget things. It's been 
30 years. They think that if they can obtain more evidence connecting Williams to Gina and even get a confession out of him, they can successfully try and convict him for her abduction and murder since there is no statute of limitations on either of those crimes. But Williams remains quiet and now sits in Jefferson City Prison with the crimes he committed seemingly growing after investigators interviewed many of his acquaintances over the years. He is now tied to at least a dozen murders across the U.S., and if you're not already pissed off enough, Williams is actually eligible for parole in the year 2039. Did you find out how old he'll be? So he was 14 in 1975 when he gave police information. So he's 61 years old today. Okay. So that's another 17 years. In 2039, he'll be eligible parole at the age of 78 years old. Okay. Well, thankfully, he'll be old and... Hopefully, he'll be dead. Yeah. And hopefully, he'll have confessed and be able anyway. Yeah. (sighs) Gina's family has not been able to have closure for over 30 years now. They don't know what happened to her, and they don't have justice for her. Gina was robbed of her life and her chance to grow up. Her family was robbed of watching her grow up and who she would have become. While it seems very clear who did it, we will never really know unless someone else comes forward with information that can definitively connect Nathan Williams to the case or he confesses himself. And until that happens, we will never know what happened or why. Gina deserves justice and to be laid to rest. Her family deserves to have closure and to see justice served. If you have any information or you know someone who may have information, please call the Madison County Sheriff Department or the Fredericktown Police Department, and we will link that information in our show notes. And that is the disappearance of Gina Don Brooks. So this is something I remember very clearly as a kid because mm-hmm. so it happened in 89. We didn't move to Bonterre until, let's say, 94. Yeah. Because you didn't go to kindergarten. You went to, you started first grade there. Yeah, halfway through first grade. So, yeah. So, that had to be, I would say, yeah, 93, 94. Probably, no, 94, because 95, my mom got injured, and that was second grade. So, yeah, 94 makes sense. Yeah. So, I remember that going there. But, so, before that, before we even moved down there, we would go to, like, Elephant Rocks and, like, like, the Ozarks and do a bunch of outdoorsy things Mm -hmm. but the first thing i remember about that case is everybody saying oh we think she's an elephant rocks that's it you know so that's another thing i should have mentioned it that that was a big thing it was a big theory in our area that they had dumped her body in johnson shut-ins or they had buried her out of elephant rocks right i seem to recall that the station wagon might have been an elephant rocks too like, they dumped the whole car. Yeah. But, yeah, they have never found her remains. So, and then there's a YouTube, there's a series of videos on YouTube that I stumbled across that there is a guy from Fredericktown. He lives in the area, and in his videos, he goes to different locations from that night. And he is alleging that he has information that she was part of, again, Trigger, a sex trafficking ring, like that she was trafficked. 
But there's absolutely no proof of this other than he's saying he has the word of someone who claims they saw her because this person was also trafficked. But there's no definitive information that can connect or even prove that that was true. So if you guys look up case information, you might stumble upon those videos. I'm not going to say they're not worth watching, but I didn't really get into them because I just think it's somebody who's just trying to get their 15 minutes. Yeah. In this case, like her parents and her, I mean, her family's still alive and her mother won't even talk about the case anymore when, you know, because they always talk about these cases around big anniversaries. They like to bring them up again, hoping it'll like shake the trees and people remember something they actually have a family like they will have a spokesperson discuss the case because her parents refuse to they don't want to talk about it anymore and that's fair it's been 30 years yeah and i don't say that as a well they don't want to talk about it well no yeah i say it as a i think that they've not necessarily made their peace but i think come to grips with the fact that they may never find out what happened to her. And it's been so long and they've missed so much of her life that while, you know, they do mourn her, they can't keep, I don't know how to articulate this. Like they can't dwell on it anymore. Right. That or like keep getting their hopes up for every tip that comes in. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, I totally get that. So that's all I have. And and like I said, this is a case that Callie and I were very familiar with growing up and something we wanted to cover because I, I, cause what I do when we do these cases that I don't think anybody's covered, I always go to Spotify mm-hmm. and look to see how many episodes pop up when I type in the subject and only one came up. So I did do a quick Google search. It looks like marriage, hauntings and murder covered mm-hmm. it at one point. And I've actually listened to them. They're another indie podcast. I haven't listened to that episode. But we support indie podcasts here. So check them out. So I think their episode is episode 27. And it seems like they're also from Missouri. Oh, cool. Okay. So yeah, if you're interested in that. Yeah, I think it's one of those things that you have to be from Missouri to know about it. And so I think it's up to podcasts who have ties to these cases not who have ties to the areas where these cases took place i think we have an obligation and again i may be sound preachy but i don't give a fuck i feel like we do have an obligation to highlight these cases because yeah it's cool to talk about john benet ramsey and i keep going back to that but it's the one that everybody fucking talks about the most right or um maura murray that's the other one that has been fucking talked to death Yeah, there's nothing that we can add to those cases. And I think that podcasts and and we're an independent podcast, we don't have a huge following. But if we can get the story out there, and somebody listens, then maybe somebody else will cover the story and the information will get out there. You know, that that's, that's where I'm coming from on it. Right. Totally agree. So yeah, thank you for getting that all out. I know. That was actually supposed to be like our episode our, two. Yeah, it was supposed to be yeah episode one or two, and we decided to do Lindbergh, and then we're like, oh, we'll do it as episode two, and then we never did it. Yeah, because it was, we were also like, 
our format the was episodes different. up. And, yeah. And because this is not a super well-known case and with it being a cold case, there's not a lot of information. And, uh, you know, the information I had in my notes was the same information pulled from every website that I – so there wasn't n- any new information that we could have split – we could have covered the Laura Dinwiddie case in it too, but I think that's an episode that deserves its own coverage. So, right. So, well, thank you for covering that. Hey, you're welcome. So, I guess all that's left to say is check out our website at horrendouspodcast.com. There you will find links to all our social medias, Patreon, blog posts, blog posts, which I really need to help start writing them. Uh, yeah, on the blog posts, I'll say uh, they're good to check out because I share links to sources we have used or even sources we didn't use but were interesting. If there's YouTube videos, I'll co- I'll connect those. I will share links to, for instance, if it's a ghost story that maybe has been on the Travel Channel or something, I'll link the episode. I'll, I share pictures, so it's it's they're definitely worth checking out. Yeah. And you'll also find all our sponsorship information there, yes. too, if you want a discount for some T-shirts or some candles or... Or you want to buy Hunt a Killer. Yeah. Or so. get some really good organic groceries. Yeah, that, too. And some cleaning products. Yes, there you go. <laughs> all right. Thanks for listening, besties. Thanks, besties. Until next time, this has been horrendous. Bye.